Uh, I guess, so my question, I guess, is, so, I don't know if you guys know this, but Valentine's Day is this week. I, honestly, yes. until you texted me about it, I did not realize that. And then it was, like, everywhere. Oh. Then I was like, oh, shit. Like, it felt like, you know, I've made this this comparison before, but, you know, in the crying game, like, after he finds out about Dill and then he goes back into the bar and realizes, like, everyone's been, like, trans or in drag this whole time. No, nobody remembers the crying game. Is it a movie? Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I remember the crying game, certainly. Um, okay. Anyways... All that to say, it was like wow, you, that would have killed in your other group. I know, right? Like, what's going on here? <laughs> you said it was Valentine's Day, and then I looked around and I was like, "Oh yeah, everything's yeah, decorated it is for Valentine's, Valentine's Day. Day." I know. There you um, go. What do you know about our pal Val? Or sorry, excuse how, me, our pals Val, because there are plural. What? Same. How long have you well, been, how long have you married, Cory? Uh, oh, it'll be fifteen years in a couple months. Yeah, 16, 16 for me in a couple of months. Does Valentine's Day still exist for you? Uh, sure. I, I think, you know, if Kia was at home to, like, buy me a box of chocolates or flowers okay. or whatever, um, okay. that's, that's, I mean, like, we don't do anything unless there's, like, something going on. But, yeah. Okay, okay, I was just checking. I'll get snacks. There you go. How about you? Yeah, do oh, you do Oh, fuck no. no. Nothing. It, it's, it does not exist. As a, oh, as a, well, as a 16-year-old married gentleman. Maybe it should. Maybe it should. It should. And you know what? I actually have just the way to get it to start. Because Beautiful. I personally think that, like, romance and dates, like, the best thing you can do is always tell them a really long-winded history story that they haven't mm. asked for. Agreed. To really set the mood yes. of romance. Let me tell you about this guy that got murdered by the state. <laughs> Um, super romantic. <laughs> so romantic. Um, I'm in. But there are actually multiple St. Valentines on the okay. rolls of the Catholic Church. Sweet. Shockingly. And I guess I should premise this, preface this by everything I'm about to tell you about St. Valentine is um, horseshit. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Because, fun fact, no one really knows, right? There's multiple Valentines. Okay, okay. There's actually two sort of main contenders for the guy that we are celebrating. Okay. And his, they're, the two guys are just, like so similar in like when they died and how they died and where they lived that they are more than likely possibly the same person. Okay. <laughs> they just got their stories mixed up. Because weird fact about the Catholic Church, like super good about like chronicling their abuses against children, but like not mm. so much about like people who are martyred for their cause, which is oh. really weird. Mm. Interesting. You would I you mean, wouldn't think. You know, I mean, it almost feels like that with a lot of the saints, right? They're like, who? what the real truth is behind him because in reality yeah. unless you believe that they've done this miraculous thing probably mm. like a little iffy right uh, so one of the just super quick and I'm, I'm sorry because since we've talked about exorcism a couple of weeks back um mm. i'm kind of finding the the kind of historical catholicism bits quite interesting what mm. are the criteria for sainthood how what, how how does one get sainted yeah that's a great question. I don't know the exact criteria, but there you yeah. do need to have a miracle associated with your life in order right. to be that's, deemed a saint. That's what right? I suspected. So like Patrick miraculously mm. got rid of all the snakes, right? And you're like, well, there are even snakes in Ireland? <laughs> so they're usually, they got to come up with something. Usually they come up with something after you've died. They're like, oh, we really liked this guy. Let's find something cool. And maybe it was yeah. could be considered a miracle. Tends mm. to okay. be mm -hmm. how it goes. It feels like the more that you look into it. 
So I know that's at least one of them. Um, and I think it has to be somehow like verifiable that it was a miracle that happened. Mm -hmm. um, so with these two guys, like I said, they both even had a similar miracle in their lives. Okay. Like, really thinking they're the same person, right? Yeah. He's either a bishop from Turney or he's a priest and a physician from the same-ish area in okay. Italy. Um, but what, essentially what I'm going to do is I'm just going to combine all of the myths into one sort of easy to read story, right? I feel good about that. Listen, yeah, if yeah, it's yeah, all kind of just like made up, then might as well. Yeah, might as well, right? So I'll tell you my favorite story, Beautiful. which I personally think is the most popular. Um, <laughs> but let's back it up really quick. So we're backing it up to 270 CE. So another reason why it's understandable that a lot of it's been lost to time. Sure. Um, but Emperor Claudius II is reigning in Rome, is known as Gothicus to his friends. Oh, which is that's a very, very, very good name. Nickname, so right? You're good. like, Gothicus. it's so good. Why yeah, is that not so, what we call him? <laughs> I know, right? Why am I, yeah, why am I messing around with Claudius II? Who cares? Uh, but he's known as Gothicus to his friends, and he's kind of known for two things. One was repelling a group of Gothic invaders, shockingly, in 269. Okay nice mm. uh and second he super hated christians loved persecuting him which okay. kind of goes with gothicus as well i feel like yeah okay. right it feels this is all adding up it's kind of adding up um but that was for his very short tenure as emperor he only had the job for like two years that's kind of his two main gigs that he gets okay so gothicus right because he repels these gothic invaders like gotta shore up the military he's a military guy um, but all the guys in in Rome were kind of like, I'd love just to like live peacefully at home and like have a family maybe. Mm. Gothic is like, hey, Nancy, no, you're joining <laughs> the army. And he's like, I don't really want to do that. But he's like, fine, I'm outlawing marriage. That way, all you fools have to come join the army, right? Ooh, okay. Um, so this is Valentine enters stage left. He's like, no, no, I can't abide this lack of love. I will continue to marry people. Oh, um, Valentine loved love. He loved love. So he's doing that. And Gothicus is like, hey, asshole, what did I just say? <laughs> Throws his ass in prison, right? Almost immediately. He's like, forget this guy. He's in prison, which I can imagine probably not a cool place in ancient Rome. Probably terrible. Would be also, my like, so I'm just thinking, like, this would have to be, like, he would have had to have kind of been, you said he was a bishop? Possibly. Or also a physician slash priest. <laughs> Okay, because I'm just thinking, like, how Who's do they say? even, like, you have to be kind of an important person, right, for them to even, like, find that out, right? Because, like, if someone's just in their, like, backyard, like, doing wedding ceremonies, it's not going to get the attention of the emperor. So, like, yeah. he, he must have kind of been... Well, it was a crackdown, I think, right? As you're trying to recruit stay. people, he's like, how come all these people keep being married? I thought I said you couldn't do that, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I What happened here? I said I that seem to distinctly thing. remember you should not be married. <laughs> I distinctly remember saying you must be single so that you can yeah. join my war machine. Okay. Uh, so Valentine finds himself in jail, but while he's there, he befriends the jailer's daughter, which okay. is also a weird, like, why was she wandering around this prison befriending <laughs> right. me? Take your daughter to work day? Apparently, but she was blind, so maybe she just got to, like, do whatever she wanted. I don't know. Also okay. weird. Yeah, anyway, that's a lot. All right. You're friends. But what is interesting, right, is that here comes the saint part, Mark, is that he yep. heals her of her blindness. St. Valentine does. 
And this Damn. leads to convert a conversion of her entire house. Did he know he could do that? Like one minute he was like, I'm marrying people. Then he was like, holy shit, I Holy can cure blindness. Well, that's why I go with the physician angle because right, I think okay, yeah. it gives yeah, okay. it more of a medicinal, maybe he just mm-hmm. like rubbed some dirt in her eyes. I don't know what he did. It doesn't go right. into that, right? Okay. Um, but converts the whole house. And this is this very beautiful story, right? The Catholic church loves conversion of whole houses. Um, Gothicus, obviously unimpressed, is like, cool, well, I'm still gonna kill you because I hate you and you're the worst and you disobeyed me. Yeah. And so, now the most most horseshit part of the story, if you believe that he cured this blind girl of his of her blindness, um, the most horseshit part of the story is that allegedly he writes a letter right right before he is about to be killed. That's like, you know, dear, whatever jailer's daughter. So glad we got to be friends. Great to meet you. You've been so wonderful. Signed, your Valentine. But you're like, first of all, I'm pretty wow. sure the girl can't read, right? <laughs> Yeah, I don't think that's a thing. She just started being able to see, and also yeah. she's literate. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, it's miraculous. <laughs> it's a miracle. It's that's a double probably miracle. more like, than miracle is that she also became literate immediately after. <laughs> anyway, so but that's it, you know ties in the Valentine story if you want to go there. So he goes in, he gets the whole thumbs down from Gothicus. He's like, yeah, still unimpressed with you, sir. And they're like, all right, how do you want to do this? He get to choose, and Gothicus is like, mm, you know what? Let's beat him to death. And then, for good measure, we'll behead him. Ooh. So, I'll do it. February 14th, do it. 270, they do just that. Beat him to death, which just is horrible. And then yeah. behead him, which feels like overkill, right? Right, it's like, mm-hmm. you know... I get it, man. He's already dead. He's already I mean, dead. <laughs> then Gothicus is kind of like, you know, he gets it. He gets he dies of the plague, which also sucks. So. Nice. <laughs> Whatever. So it. take that, Gothicus. Hate that Gothicus. So Saint Valentine gets made a saint, and then is promptly forgotten. Literally, nobody celebrates him. No one cares. Oh, he wallows in obscurity for a thousand years. To be fair, like on the scale of shit saints do, it's like he married some people and cured a single blind girl. He converted a whole household to Christianity. Corrigan, and converted a household to Christianity. The household like, were probably thinking about it anyway. They were right? Like on the yeah, fence. like they were on. He the, just came along. They were on the cusp. They were on the verge. Yep. <laughs> um, but, but then you flash forward a thousand years to the hype man of all hype men. 1375, Jeffrey Chaucer. I was about nice to say, tale. is it Jeffrey Chaucer? Is it Jeffrey Chaucer? <laughs> of a nice yeah. tale fame. Protector of Italian virginity. <laughs> he plucks Valentine from his obscurity, right? Here nice. he is. No one knows who he is. No one gives two shits about him. But Chaucer's like, gotta really zhuzh up this poem I'm writing about birds. I know. Gonna use this guy. <laughs> this is relatable. I, uh, I get it. <laughs> right. So he writes in 1375. Chaucer writes a poem called "The Parliament of Fowls," um, which extols the virtues of romantic love and says, you know, uh, for this was sent on Saint Valentine's Day, when every fowl cometh there to to choose his mate, um, and okay. apparently was a runaway hit in medieval times. They loved it because they're like, oh, February dead of winter nobody wants to go outside and you want us to bone yeah we also sign love me up valentine <laughs> sign me up um and it becomes super popular and so ever since then people celebrate the feast of saint valentine on february the 14th the day he was you know viciously murdered yeah by the it's not like his mm. birthday or anything no who cares about that i also <laughs> don't know when it is right who cares because we don't really know which right. valentine it is but we do know when he died very violently 
Uh, and yeah, and so now that's why we celebrate this. So you're welcome, everyone. Feel free Thank to you. share this with your loved ones and say, mm, yeah. I love you so much that I would have someone beaten and beheaded for you. I don't know, or something. Like and isn't that, in the end, the, the best way to display our love? <laughs> right? Isn't it? With violence? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Let me quote directly from my notes, if I may. Yes, please do. Fucking look at these nerds. Oh, mise-en-scene. I don't think anyone has ever said mise-en-scene in such a horny way before. The way I whispered the word sex cannibal recently. Worst comes to worst, Mark. I'm willing to guillotine you for science. Thank you. That's really, really sweet. It's you cold know. outside, but my pancreas is talking to me. I'm fucking, <laughs> I'm gonna leg it. You know how I feel about that, Mark. I think you feel great about it. All right, fuck it. Here we go. Uh, with, look, because you know we gotta, and you know you need to listen to it anyway. It's another week. It's another Jack of All Graves. Uh, this week, something a little different for me. This mm. week, I'm essentially a guest. You are, on yeah. The cast, which... Uh, feels good, you know, uh, from a, from a normally just days of research and, you know, painstaking, pouring through dusty tomes, you know what I mean? <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, rifling through yellowed papers and attics, interviews, uh, you know, just really nitty gritty investigative mm -hmm. kind of work that goes in to this podcast week in, week out, mainly by me, I will say, but it's been nice. <laughs> It's been nice to just kind of take a little back seat because this week I'm a guest. Because this week, Jack of All Graves brings you an extra helping of latitude. Do you know what I'm saying? Ooh. Fucking right. Yes. Nice. Because this week it's the uh, Corey and Kristen show. But what I will say, just one, just one thing. I know, I know. And you've always wanted one of you. I know. I know you have. We used to have one. We used to have one. We used to have one. Oh, was that a fan cave? Yeah. Mm -hmm. The one that I specifically asked Corey to invite me on as a guest. You and keep, just keep saying this, and I do. Yeah, I don't believe you. I'll find the. I'll find. I'll find the tweet. No, well, no, I won't. <laughs> yeah, it's a, you can't anymore. <laughs> but I did. I, I, you should get me on your podcast. Is what I wrote. She never ever got okay. me on the podcast. Never, <laughs> never replied. Never replied. Well, look at uh, we're we're yeah. fixing that right now. Yeah. That's that's mm -hmm. what this is. We're retroactively fixing the wrongs of the past. It's the Joag fan cave. That's <laughs> oh. <laughs> nice. Excellent. <laughs> Just super quick. Um. Uh. I don't know. <sighs> I'm not going to say that we've been on a cancer tip of late. I don't want to say that because we, we have talked of cancer quite a bit of late. We had the, oh, that's of, true. Yeah. You know, tapeworm cancer lad last week. Um, I do want to just quickly mention that uh, this week it was, it's been widely reported in a lot of different places. Check this out. Wolves, right? Uh -huh. Wolves who inhabit the area, the exclusion zone around Chernobyl. Oh, have yeah, mutated yeah. to be fucking cancer proof. Bruh. Fucking right. Mutant <laughs> cancer proof wolves around the Chernobyl exclusion zone. How fucking metal is that? Do wolves they... get a lot of cancer generally? Uh, well, dogs do and people do. So probably. I'm sure. Yes. I don't know who told me this, but I'm sure someone told me once the cancer is a genetic inevitability. If you live long enough, you. I think I told it. you that. Yeah. There you go. There you go. See, retaining <laughs> as, knowledge. Yeah. Hey. Oh my gosh. As one Mark, might expect, I did. Ninety percent of my things. I'm like, oh, someone was telling me this. Of course, like that was me. That I, was I told you that. I'm like, oh, you're so smart. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, it's but, always yeah. fun to hear your the things you tell people repeated back to you, though. It's like a game of yeah. telephone. How how well did yeah. it did it come through the first time? Yeah, it comes yes. back. Yeah, you should start Inception and kind of lies to us. <laughs> And see yeah, if we can, the goal being we, we repeat the lie back to you at some point in the future. Right, it'll be like when they tricked like Derek Akora on Most Haunted into like channeling a ghost that was an anagram for Derek is a faker. <laughs> <laughs> Very yes, nice. I'm going to start doing that. Yeah, just so you watch uh, out. But I just think it's super metal that there are cancer-proof wolves around Chernobyl. No, that's uh, hardcore. And analyzing these wolves, they uh, share traits with people who've been through like intense radiotherapy. They've got the same kind of immune system or the same kind of cancer murdering Wild. kind of composition in them. So that Which means that very... like certainly they must be then trying to like figure out like can we channel some of whatever did this, the radiation yes. at Chernobyl to make humans yes. cancer proof. There are boffins all over it. Incredible. Trying to synthesize some kind of wolf based medicine. Oh I'd gosh. take wolf pills any day. Yeah, I'm me too. Jack Every me day up. and twice on Sunday, for sure. Yes. Cancer-proof <laughs> werewolf. Cancer-proof werewolf. Oh, man. Someone make that movie. We're Imagine werewolves, that. not swearwolves. <laughs> oh, I love that movie. Nice. <laughs> All of which to say, uh, it's lovely to have you along, and it's lovely to be talking at you. Uh, obviously, the topics aren't great these neck you know the, this wow. this this current run of joag but it's it's you know it's it's shit you need to hear and it's shit i in particular need to hear uh so school me girls <laughs> well with that yeah you know such a delightful intro into yeah. it this topic sucks but you have to listen to it anyway so welcome to it. jack of all grapes anyway <laughs> uh We're yeah um, and, you know, before we get started getting into all of that, of course, we're going to go through our watches for this week. This week, we're really going to go quick through them. It's not going to take us quick. 40 minutes. It's going to be quick. Bah, 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 we're just going to say that to ourselves over and over again. But you know what? You know where the timestamp is uh, yeah. if you want to skip past it, you know. And if yeah. you didn't know where the timestamp is, um, it's in the description. And in a lot of your podcast Doofus. apps, you can literally just skip sections uh, based on those timestamps. I know in Podcast Addict, that's <laughs> what I do. So, hey, Very listen. selling ourselves great this week. <laughs> no, really. These are the bits. <laughs> this topic you, you can skip it. this part you if you want. You can skip this part <laughs> if you hate it. Um, <clears throat> you know, listen, Crush I understand that. that there are people who enjoy info dumps, but they don't give a shit about horror movies and probably vice versa. So there is yeah, always, yeah, I yeah. do this for you, my dear friends. I put that timestamp in here every week so you know what parts to skip and what parts to stay for. That said, before we get into um, our watches and all that kind of stuff, a few quick things to get to. Of course, this Saturday, we have Book Club, the 17th. Uh, we are reading? reading Behind Her Eyes, I believe is the name of the book. Uh, no it's a... one knows what it's like. I should have seen that one come in. Yeah. Fucking right. You, you walk right into that one. <laughs> to go to book club. Oh, so Ooh, okay. With Corey. <laughs> reading behind her eyes. Yes. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> that was beautiful. Yeah. It was. Yeah, I felt, felt really good about that. Uh, going to play it for if, the book In case club. you're interested, I was doing the Limp Biscuit version. There's a Limp right. Biscuit version? Naturally. Yeah, there is. I could tell that. There is by your <laughs> like general you could, vibe there was a durstiness about it <laughs> there was a durstiness yeah exactly yeah durstesque one might say durstesque yes mm, um, i'm feeling kind of dusty <laughs> <laughs> jesus christ 
<laughs> I don't know if I like that or not, but this Saturday, February the 17th, we will be uh, talking about that book. It is always a good time. Even, you know, it's a thriller. I haven't gotten to it yet because I've been reading like crazy for this, um, but they made a Netflix movie out of it. So I assume it's a it's an interesting one. So looking forward to talking about that um, on the reading note as well. Our dear Ryan, bookseller Ryan has put together a reading, a, a shoppable reading list uh, mm. at Gibson's of the books that we are reading and talking about for this series on Gaza. So that is in the description slash on our website, jackaboldgraves.com slash blog. Oh, and you can, can I just do a shout out to Ryan? Because oh, this Ryan. past Christmas, I asked her for books. So I buy all the kids in my family books for Christmas. It makes it easier. So I gave her like their ages and some of their thing. And she made me a list through Gibson's. And Amazing. I just had to oh, click yeah. on the books I wanted. It was so lovely. Yeah, she's I don't the know best. If she does that for everybody. Maybe that was just a nice thing she, she did for me, best. but <laughs> she's just the best. And Gibson's is the best. And they sent me a bunch of Pedro Pascal bookmarks once. I was like, oh, Ugh. there's one in the book that I was reading today. It's one of those Gibson's think, Pedro Pascal. See, bookmarks. I think the story's too sad. I don't want to put him in there. I, I know it did feel weird. <laughs> I was like, don't, don't, don't make him sad, please. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's a strange one to put Pedro in, but yeah. you know, it is what it is. Most of my bookmarks now are the Pedro Pascal ones yeah. from Gibson's. Um, so check that out. It's in, like I said, in the description or on the blog. You can find that uh, as well as links like uh, to all of those. There's a PDF of one of the things that we read that uh, I've linked to in there as well. So, you know, you know where to find the sources. Um, and the other thing is we're going to do a watch along on the yep. 24th. So that is a week this Saturday. Yes. Mark, do you have thoughts on a topic yet or are we going to pick a theme later? I don't have one fucking thought. Not just even... generally, but also generally, he's like, it's my natural state of things. <laughs> I choose to not think. Makes it easy. I ain't even got off the starting blocks yet, made on that one. Okay, so <laughs> we'll we'll circle back as always. If you have a a category, a theme, whatever that has been bopping yes, around in your head say, that you I'm want wide us open to do for suggestions, yes, yes, um, do let us know on the socials. But otherwise, Mark will come up with something. He always does. Yeah. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> I'm a reliable bag puller. A uh, what? That's what I am. But I'll, I'll always pull something out of the bag. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh, <laughs> sure. sure. I thought yep. it was clear. Yeah. I thought it was clear. <laughs> no, obviously. I don't know where, where my head was yeah. at. I'm sorry. Bag puller. That's what I call bag people puller. too who pull stuff mm -hmm. out of bags. Bag puller. <laughs> did, you, did you listen to the 18s at all, Kristen? The 18s or the 18? Teens. No. The, they were like a... I don't know, Swedish group probably that like yeah, did ABBA covers, but also some of their own pop sure. songs. Obviously. And they like, I was just thinking of like inscrutable <laughs> phrases like that. And they had a song that was called floor filler. I was like, I don't know, maybe that makes sense to a Swede, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no idea what floor filler is supposed to mean. I think it was supposed oh, to be like a floor dance. with your dancing, right? Yeah, it's I was like, like maybe everyone, everyone comes out on the dance floor. I don't yeah, know. that is, I knew exactly what that means. A floor okay. filler is one that will, we get you it. Know, you get idioms, all right? <laughs> you invented them, okay? <laughs> if you're at a wedding, the DJ uh -huh. will all, it's all floor fillers. Oh, well, okay. Hmm. Is that a oh. thing? Is that a phrase people would use? 100%. Well, no, we have go. you heard it before? Or did you just <laughs> get it from concert? Yeah, right. No, a zillion percent. I've <laughs> okay. heard floor fillers. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Oh, I think it. there's like a series of like compilation albums called like 100% floor fillers or 
similar. Oh, like wow, this is that's what I call music, but wow, <laughs> wow, that's, that's what, what I call floor fillers. fillers. Wow, that's what I call music. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not opposed to it. Well, I stand Thursday, corrected that perfectly scrutable playlist on Spotify. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Well, then let's jump into what we watch, <laughs> shall we? Yes. <clears throat> Pardon me. Uh, and uh, this week, let's see, we, we managed. Oh, OK. I've said several times in the past several weeks that I've been sort of struggling to get in the zone to watch movies or anything like that. Um, I think just the world is overwhelming and it's hard to sit and like watch a movie. Yep. But you posted a a, a skeet on the blue sky <laughs> that yeah. uh, referenced a film that I had not heard of called King Ralph. Uh, you watched King Ralph. You I fucking, watched King you Ralph. You weirdo. <laughs> I watched King Ralph. Kristen, have you heard of King Ralph? I have not heard of King Ralph. When it I when sound I... scary though, is it scary? No, it's not. It's not scary. Oh. This is this is no. just because Mark referenced it. That's why gotcha. I'm bringing it up. Um, but when I put it on, like you know, a lot of times Kia is just sitting on the couch, and I just put on a movie, and he's <gasps> like, "It's this is happening to me." Uh, <laughs> and so when I started it, he assumed like he was like, "Oh, this must be like she's like something from her childhood that she's bringing back." And I was like, "Oh yeah, Mark referenced this. I never heard of it." He was like, "You've never heard of King Ralph?" And I was like, mm. "No, should I have?" This movie uh, is about um, the entire royal family getting zapped and dying in one fell swoop. Um, Wait, sorry, like so it's based shoot? off a dream that Mark had? Is that what you're saying? No, 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 he just, he just it's, posted It's quite close to it. coming reality, you know what I mean? If, yeah, if monarchs sure. keep dying, right. which yeah. they should. <laughs> so there's that. But yeah, so the premise is the entire royal family dies off and the only heir that they can find in the line is the product of a goodman. one night stand who is john goodman who is like a las yes, vegas please. showman naturally uh, as he and should be so he comes and this is like i mean Kristen, like as someone who a loves the princess diaries and b watches hallmark movies there is nothing not to like about this this is your fish out of water american in royalty story um it's absurd John Goodman is like so charming and handsome in this. Like I was like, I did not realize John Goodman could get it. Yeah, he could get it. <laughs> and uh, it's it's just a delight. It's like a very fun, stupid movie. Um, yeah. And you know, with some like, it's got uh, Vernon Dursley from Harry Potter. Is yes. I don't know what okay. his actual name is. Uh, it's know. got Peter R. O'Toole. That guy's dead. R.I.P. Him as well, Peter O'Toole. Okay. You know, uh, Lawrence of Arabia. I bet. Uh -huh. I bet he plays some sort of butler, doesn't he? It's tricky. There's a <laughs> twist with that. So, oh, okay. <laughs> but he does alert. play like a, you know, yeah, like an attaché type person. You know, yeah. um, and you know, whatever Brits call their people who like do stuff. I don't know. Um, but yeah, King Ralph, valet, a valet, <laughs> yeah, something, something like called? that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but yeah, King Ralph was a blast. And listen, if you're looking for something stupid to watch and you like um, a oh, floor class, well, there you go. You like a Hallmark uh, royalty movie if you like a Princess Diaries, but you want it like maybe a little more vulgar. Um, you know, that's what I've always said. 
that's Princess yeah. Diaries, but rated <laughs> but R, naked. please. Rated R, yeah. <laughs> no, it's totally PG-13. It's just like, you know, there's like allusions to strippers Toilet. in it and stuff sure. like that, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. Uh, but delightful. Um, also, yesterday I watched a movie someone had recommended on um, the Dead and Lovely Facebook called Landlocked. Uh, and this is a sparse, like, calling this an independent movie is, like, it's not even that far into the, like, studio system. This is a movie made by one guy, essentially. Uh, he has, like, his family play all the roles in it, but it's mostly, like, just one of his siblings who's, like, the main character um, in it. And it is about a guy who his father has died and they're going to demolish his house and when he goes to sort of get the stuff out of it, he finds a um, an old camera, like a video camera, the kind you like put on your shoulder, you know, no. from the 80s. And don't take it. <laughs> and take it. when he Is looks through this camera, oh, he no. can see whatever the date was that the camera is set to. He can see what was happening in the place he's looking at on that date. Oh. Uh, yeah. So it's That's fun. Um, Right. Yeah, and why so is it's it called landlocked? I, I honestly I don't know why it's called landlocked. Does it take that place I'm not in, sure. Like Oklahoma or something? <laughs> no, it takes place in New Jersey. <laughs> oh. Famously not, not landlocked. landlocked. No, yeah. I'm not sure why it's called that. There's like here's the thing about this movie. Like it's it's very sparse and it is very much like the product of one guy making something. So it's not a perfect movie by any stretch of the imagination. It is clearly like made on a budget of his milk money. <laughs> you know, like there's there's nothing to this in that sense. Uh, but it's really kind of it's a, you know, a guy who had a cool idea um, and just filmed it himself. Uh, with his own stuff, got his family in these roles that like they don't have to do much. So it's not like you're like, ooh, non-actors. It's like they <laughs> just kind of appear and, and are gone most of the time. Um, and like really as something to be made by like one person under those uh, circumstances, I think it was a really good effort. You know, like if this were something that was made by a studio, I'd be like, come the fuck on. But for someone to make this by themselves, I think it, it was creepy. Points. It's yeah, just for that, just for the the endeavor. Exactly. Like mm. it would just basically be me taking my like, you know, my little Osmo thing or whatever and like walking around and making a, a movie, you know, <laughs> and he, he Which, manages way, to pull it should. off. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think that all the time, like, why not? Uh, and mm. that's one of the things I love about this is like he did that. You know, we all think it like, what if I just made like a little thing and he, he did it. Um, mm. And I think it came out you know, very good for what it is. So Landlocked, I recommend giving a go because it's on all of the like free things like Tubi and Roku and all that kind of stuff. And it's an hour and 17 minutes. So. Oh, perfect. <laughs> right? Like it doesn't overstay its welcome. Nice. <laughs> um, And then together, we watched a, a first cinematic outing that was less good, I think. Uh, My fucking shit streak continues with kill her it, yeah. it's all one word and the h is capitalized like kill her kill her wait like kill a her. killer but like kill a, her oh uh, because it's uh, got women in it you see no kill her. thank you i mean yeah. i feel like maybe that was the first the first indication. sign maybe the poster look cool though i'll give them that the poster mm. look cool and if you if you read what people say about it on letterboxd 
you you could be fooled into thinking you were about to watch a good movie. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like solidly threes across the board, which is not like overwhelmingly great, but like people say good things about it. So, yeah, yeah. I would say you it makes sense to have better expectations than the film we actually watched. Good. I'm glad you you seem forgiving for me for putting that before <laughs> us. Thank you very much. Yes. <laughs> oh, I don't know. What do we even fucking say? Uh, a They start off as quite a convincingly portrayed group of girls who go do, on a camping yeah. trip as some as a kind of a bachelorette party. Did I, did I say that? You did, right? I like that you, yeah, you went for that. Yeah. Um, they went on a hen do. Oh, they, you don't know how to say That's what they did. hey yeah. <laughs> Uh, and something, something, mask, something, killer, something, something, other guy, and a bunch of fucking things. It's, it, it, it's, uh, it, oh, it, it, oh, it thinks it's so smart, doesn't it? Yeah. It thinks it's so much fucking smarter than it is. I think they've, they've seen like one horror movie and, and yeah. thought, oh, we, we can do this, huh? Yeah. <laughs> it kind of had that feel of like, because uh, what are Alice and Brie and her husband the franco who's dave not franco terrible. dave franco dave. they have a habit of doing this like seeing a genre that like is you know like romantic comedies or horror and things like that and being like we're mm. gonna make it but we're gonna make it good and and then they just like make a movie that it's like yeah i guess they've seen a horror movie once but like this is a bad version of that <laughs> like this yeah. already exists in better forms uh, that felt like this, where it was like they like, oh, we're gonna make like a really clever horror, and it was like, okay, well, you've just remade a bunch of other horror movies that were a lot better. Yes, including yes, Sissy, and, and... one that both Mark and I have uh, talked at length about on this podcast that we love. Another, <laughs> though, Mark has little recollection of it now, but at the time, yes. he's watched yeah. it enjoyed, twice enjoyed and loved it, it both times. Apparently. Oh, that's good. <laughs> and yeah. uh, always new, you know, yeah. he always gets to experience yeah. yes, it again. Exactly. Uh, um, Another girls' trip craziness uh, story that I think is a lot better. Also, look, Bear's fucking pointing out, right, that mm-hmm. this is for the for the most part an entirely bloodless film, right? For a fucking yeah. movie that it's fifty five minutes before you get a get a kill, no no kills at all, yeah. uh, and don't watch it, right? Yeah, but I'm go- I'm merely going to spoil it because you're missing nothing. The killer is white and blonde. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. The first fucking, the first kill is uh, the gay black guy. Yep. Second kill is uh, an, an Asian character who literally is in it for like eight, you know, the, the time it takes to get stabbed. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, uh, to the point where I literally was like, wait, okay, so we had just been like, the first to die is a black man. And then she killed the second guy. And I was like, Mark, was that an Asian man? And he was like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yikes. I didn't think the third. Wasn't the third? Uh, I don't know. It took a long time before like a third person like actually died. But yeah, so that's (sighs) fucking horrible as well. I mean, you know. In 2024, you can't get away with that. Come on. At best, it's tone deaf. And at worst, it's racist. So yeah. Not cool. Don't watch Kill Her. Yeah, and it's a shit watch film Sissy. as well. You know what? Yeah. Wasn't gonna. But now I definitely <laughs> am not gonna. So yes. good. Yeah. Uh what else uh, do we watch, Mark? So um uh no then. I've worked out a, a way that I can get the kids to watch cool films under mm-hmm. under the radar, and that's to lie about mm-hmm. the rating. 
<laughs> I just tell a little lie, say mm. it's a 12A, you know what I mean? Hey. And uh, that was how I got the kids to watch Prey this week. Nice. Um, oh, and it was. You know, I, you know how much I love. Even you know, Kristen me. loves Prey. <gasps> oh, Prey <laughs> is so beautiful. I also just watched it this week again. It's so yes. good. It's beautifully done. The plot yes. just freaking love it so much yeah it's phenomenal it is absolutely phenomenal the boys were fucking gripped the entire way through oh, amazing i love to hear that yep just an absolute banger uh it's it's easily joint first of the predator fucking easily, series yeah. isn't it? easily if not have they watched the other one. predator movies mark or is this the first one that they've seen well no but the predators in Fortnite, you see Ah, oh, so, yeah. wow, because you know. everything is in Fortnite. Why wouldn't yes. the Predator be in Fortnite? Uh, but it, it landed so beautifully. Uh, Ugh, love to hear it. Peter was was translating like little bits and bobs of the French. Oh, oh nice. You know, he's, he's you know, does French. Uh, and yep, absolutely majestic. Just a fucking absolutely brilliant movie. Um, yeah. And at last, I got my arse in gear and picked up the Blu-ray of RoboDoc, the, nice. uh, the that, that expansive, all-encompassing RoboCop documentary that came out. Yeah, last I year. need to get on that. Oh, it's... It, look, your mileage may vary, right? But you, you've you got to be really, really interested in RoboCop to get a lot out of this film, <laughs> out of this documentary, because it is <laughs> it is forensic, mm. right? It is it is it goes down to the fucking fine detail. It's got mm. all the major players in it. Verhoeven is just the most likable fucking lunatic on on you Love know that. on camera as as he comes across. Um, uh, Peter Weller is. Just a fucking absolute crank, just a mental <laughs> old bat. Uh, As all is of the his brand. Cast. Yeah, it's like, yeah, he's yeah. one of those people who, like, there are certain actors that I can't totally like match old version of them with young version of them. Like Alec Baldwin yes. is another one of those where I'm like, the guy mm. from Beetlejuice is not the guy from Thirty Rock. That's two <laughs> separate people. Yeah, I get and that. like I get that. Buckaroo Bonsai is not the same guy as the crank that you talk mm. about here. And I can't imagine like that personality, even though I'm sure he was exactly like that, but I can't imagine that personality on young Peter Weller. Well, by all accounts, um, Dr. Weller, as he insists on fucking saying I love everything. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, was very, very hard to pin down and to actually get in the documentary. Uh, I saw Christopher Griffiths, the, the creator, who's from Cardiff, I would like to say. Um, nice. He's the same guy who did the um, Video Nasties doc, right? He did Video Nasties. He did uh, Hollywood Nightmares, the Robert Englund story. Oh, that's a great one too, yeah. He did uh, the It documentary, the Pennywise It documentary. Oh, I haven't watched that one yet. But yes, a documentarian of some renown. <laughs> and saw him do a panel on it some years back. And yeah, he, you know, well, I wanted pay-in, mate. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted paying. Uh, and well, fuck, why wouldn't he? You know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? Um, but yeah, the 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 first episode talks in depth about the, the problems with getting the costume. Uh, the, the, the costume was a fucking huge issue. Uh, mm. You know, well, I went through months of kind of uh, training and tuition with a, a, a like an Italian ballet teacher wow. to get the movements right. And then they get him in the costume and he can't do fucking any of it because <laughs> he's, he's just a, he's just that um took 40 I think you hours should to leave. put the costume on. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. He's Carl There's too much fucking shit on him. There was too much fucking shit on him. Um 
so that that nearly that nearly drew you know ground the entire film to a halt. It nearly it nearly didn't happen because of that, and they had to cut a lot of it. But anyway, I can't wait to watch the rest of it because it's Beautiful. absolutely it is food for my soul. It's a wonderful, wonderful piece. Nice, love that. Yeah, Kristen, you actually have a um, horror adjacent watch. I do have a horror adjacent watch. It's also historical. Spoiler alert. Well, uh, well, I mean, fake historical, but you know, well, kind of half. It doesn't matter. Historical yeah. fiction is a thing. Yeah, yes. it's a historical fiction. So it's on Netflix. It's called Jiangshong Creature. It's a Korean drama. So if you are into Korean dramas, it does have a, f- if you've ever watched a Korean drama, it has that flavor of like slow looks mm-hmm. and like romantic, you know, soft focus. But also it, the premise of it is it's, um, uh, April 1945 in Korea, so they're um, being occupied by Japan at the end, towards the end of the world of World War II, and the Japanese are um, essentially they've set up in Jiang in Jiangshong, which is like modern day Seoul, um, and they are experimenting on prisoners that they keep at like the bowels of this hospital. It's like very terrible, and there's like a Mangala type character who's Ugh. very awful, and they've found this parasite in the water. That when ingested, certain people ingest it, they turn into this like horrible monster. Um, that when it's asleep, it's like um, a protective mechanism is it's it sheds anthrax into the air. Oh, oh so wow, yeah. And so it's like they have to move it at one point during the show, and so they like trank it, and it's like asleep in this thing. But because so the guys that are around it are wearing these like protective suits, but like almost everybody that's like being experimented on in the kind of prison basement gets anthrax poisoning and dies horribly it's like atrocious it's very and it's a little graphic in some areas like when the monster wakes up it just goes fucking hog wild and kills anything in its path (laughs) so it's a little bloody (laughs) and crazy um anyway so the whole point is that the kind of main characters are searching for a couple of other people and as in the just in the midst of that they're kind of discovering like what is going on behind this hospital why is this like weird guy with the wireframe glasses like very much an evil man um and so it's different than any other korean drama i've watched so if you've watched a korean drama they're usually very a little softer around yeah. the edges. Mm. um <laughs> and while this does have components of that uh it is intense it's kind of scurry so anyway well i'm gonna have to have you like send me the name of that because i can't begin to spell that uh phonetically myself uh but of course if you're into that concept that will be in the uh just look in the show notes right below this episode or again on the blog (laughs) i love that concept of an anthrax monster yeah i feel like my mom and sister would love to watch this yeah, it's interesting, right? Because that's when it's asleep. So when it's awake, it's also like a it's just terror. like every kind mm. of deadly. Yeah, it's just like awful, and it's re- the opening credits are beautiful. I'm a sucker for a good opening credit. I love <laughs> it when they've incorporated something right into the story, and they yeah. sort of if we I wasn't paying attention the first time, but then the second time I watched it, I was like, oh, this is giving me background on this like oh, monster. Oh, okay, it's really well done. It's really cool. So anyway, I like it. Very nice. nice. So, okay. I watch scary things too. I'm cool like you guys. You do. It's true. You do from time to time. I mean, listen, you've seen Prey. Accident. It's like, yeah, sometimes an accident. It's like, it just depends if it like intersects with another one of your interests. Yeah. As Is it a historical just... monster show? I would love to watch okay. it. Okay. And was that all the watches that we have for this week? I think yeah. so. All right. Look at us. I mean, that genuinely was like 10 minutes. Rip through it. Great job, team. Huh. Quick I'm proud of you guys. Oh, COVID. <laughs> there we go.
So now let's get back to the uh, not fun part that Mark has uh, has already. No, it, more to it, no. it can be fun. No, no, no. We'll 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 have fun, but also it is terrible. We'll we'll give you that. Um, but last week on the cast, we talked about the birth of American imperialism. Uh, the point that not all that long. Why ago... don't I try and sum up last week to see what landed? Oh, yeah, please do. Yeah. Okay. So quiz pop quiz time, Mark. Mm, uh, of himself. America had a very, very strong and intense period there of under whatever auspices, be it, you know, uh, be it missionary kind of work or be it just flat out expansionism, uh, thanks to one of one of Roosevelt's. Yes. Yes. Uh, a guy who... <laughs> That's a that's a good Ed, hint. Yes. Cuddly Rose. Yes, yes, of Roosevelt. course, Edward but... Edward Roosevelt. Um, <laughs> did you say Edward? I did. No, it's supposed Theod- to be Teddy, like Teddy, Teddy like Theodore. Yeah, 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 which is another word for Edward, Julie. Well, but in this case, it's Theodore. Wait, okay, fine. <laughs> yeah, well, it's like like one of the Kennedys was Ted Kennedy, and he was Edward. But yeah, no, in really, this case, that guy's name Theodore. was Edward. Yeah, didn't know that. Okay, I don't know. Learn something new. I don't anyway, know if sorry, I've said this I'm really cast. derailing I don't, this. I, I don't know if I've said this on the cast before, but um, one of Peter's school friends is called Ted, and he's got a little brother called Theo. Like, oh. <laughs> his mum has called both of her kids Edward <laughs> without realising it. And apparently she gets really sensitive <laughs> when people point it out. Because oh, no. that, that's the joke with Bill and Ted, isn't it? Ted, Theodore, Logan. He's called Ed twice. That's mm. the fucking joke. But anyway... Oh, is uh, it? Apparently. Okay. <laughs> well, I've missed that joke for so, 30 years. <laughs> whether it be uh, Spain or the fucking Philippines or, you know, Cuba, I want to say. Mm-hmm. Lots of, you know, policy and hidden under loads of different fucking, you know, uh, uh, just excuses, basically, which all boil down to, I think we want that country as well. Thanks. Yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that about sums it up. Yeah. Um, as I put it here uh, in my intro, basically the same idea. Um, we went from believing that people of all nations have the right to self-rule and self-determination to believing that we should own territories against people's will if it's economically or militarily beneficial to us. Like so we talked about the ways in which we justified that, as you were saying, how we separated ourselves from previous colonial powers by insisting that we wouldn't be tyrants, uh, that we'd lead differently, that our presence <clears throat> would be benevolent, and that because of our benevolence, the occupied territories would accept us with open arms. Obviously, that's not how it worked. <laughs> I don't think that's going to come what? as a surprise to anybody, right? But if it does, um, please go back and listen to last week's episode to catch up on how we immediately turned into murderous tyrants and paved the way for our future involvement in Israel and Palestine. This week, we're dealing with the Palestine issue more directly, switching focus to your country, the UK, hey. dear Marco. And unfortunately, I can usually give you a little bit of a Welsh pass. Uh, but in this case, much of the movement toward the foundation of Israel and the acceptance of Zionism came under the leadership of your man, David Lloyd George. Ah, come on. The first Welsh prime minister. <laughs> wah, wah. Yeah, please to play your saddest of trombones here. <laughs> um, 
I want to lead into this week's main topic with some context from one of the greatest minds with whom we have the privilege of sharing this rapidly burning planet, Naomi Klein. Have either of you ever read any Naomi Klein? Naomi Klein? I haven't, but I've shared. I've saved this book now that we've. She's incredible. Um, She's one of the, I mean, I'd kind of like encountered her and her work for a long time, but she was one of those like people that I got into during lockdown times. And uh, yeah, incredible person. If you're not familiar with her, uh, for one, she is not Naomi Wolf. Her Mm. most recent book, Doppelganger, is in fact about the fact that she's not Naomi Wolf. (laughs) Naomi Wolf is an unhinged conspiracy theorist who thinks you can kill a baby by shedding vaccines on it. And Naomi Klein is a Canadian leftist thinker who has dedicated her career to uncovering the actual ways in which corporations and governments collude to the detriment of folks like the working class, the global south, or, you know, literally everyone when it comes to climate change specifically. Uh, Klein is Jewish and she grew up in Montreal and, like most Jews, was raised heavily enmeshed in the Jewish community. In the aforementioned book, Doppelganger, she talks at length about her Jewishness, about anti-Semitism, and about Israel. And as we get into discussing the devastating effects of Zionism on Palestine, I want to first give a little context to the very real oppression of Jews that it's built out of um, and how Klein grapples with that history while standing vehemently against Israel visiting the same oppression onto the Palestinians. And before we even get into that, I want to point out that she lays out in this book what we've already started to broach in this podcast, starting with last week, uh, that even the worst act of anti-Semitism in history, the Holocaust during World War II, was stitched together from policies used by the Brits and the Americans. She notes that Hitler once wrote, concentration camps were not invented in Germany. It is the English who are their inventors, using this institution to gradually break the back of other nations. And indeed, such camps had been used by the Brits during the Anglo-Boer War in what's now South Africa, as well as by the Spanish and the US in Cuba and so on. So she quotes the British Royal Navy commander, Bedford Pym, as saying to the Anthropological Society of London in 1866 that there was, quote, mercy in a massacre of indigenous peoples, which is a very cool attitude. Sure, yeah. Totes. Totes. For their own good. Uh, Eugenics laws and ideologies were rampant in the U.S. before Hitler ever started imposing it upon the undesirables of Germany, with tens of thousands of Americans forcibly sterilized in order to take their dirty DNA out of the gene pool. Most of these people being the intellectually and physically disabled, the poor, immigrants, and people of color. Exactly who you'd expect. Of the government. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Cool, right? We should we'll, maybe we'll delve into that in another episode. That's a whole other series yeah. about how the government. <laughs> yeah, Ooh. that was that was a thing, um, and we don't talk about it at yeah, all. No, 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 no. How uh, how long ago is this? I think the last of this happening was like the seventies, but it started in the early nineteen hundreds. Yeah, yeah. So that was when uh, sort of eugenics and biological racism and all that kind of stuff were thriving. Was in the early nineteen hundreds. But we're really good at branding so that our atrocities are disguised. Hell, we call putting Japanese people in concentration camps internment, a word which doesn't nearly conjure the same horror when we hear it. Like, what does that even mean? (laughs) (laughs) And when it comes to the formation of Israel, a mixture of hiding the brutality under less horrifying terms and PR spin and simply making sure no one knew about it (laughs) has hidden what we've done there. 
And Kristen will get into this, but most Jews have been taught that Palestine was a place without a people for a people without a place. It was empty. What good fortune that the homeland was there just waiting for them to take. Obviously, that was not the case. But here's why, for many Jews, Zionism, a thing, again, Kristen will define shortly, uh, is justified and necessary. For ages, Jews have been maligned, oppressed, villainized, and displaced all over the world. According to Klein, scholars trace hatred of Jews all the way back to antiquity, quote, to Hellenistic resentments of Jewish self-segregation, a perceived clannishness. And you definitely hear that shit today. <laughs> Right. Like, oh, the Jews, they're, they stick together. They have to be plotting things, all that kind of stuff. Um, it's been there a long time, apparently. But per perhaps. Oh, go ahead, Mark. Where. Where is the academic view of its beginning anti-Semitism? Where did it? Well, that's start? exactly it. Like, this is what she says it's traced to, to antiquity i mean we're talking about like the early like gosh i don't know i'm so terrible with years when it comes well, to i would assume it'd be like, like after the diaspora right right um, of course yeah would probably be i'd assume when it was i want to say when it started but i would say <laughs> always yeah long enough ago that Basically, it's forever. We're talking about yeah, times yeah, yeah. of... Yeah, functionally forever, yeah. Functionally forever, yeah. Um, that's a good question. I don't know the exact, like, years that would be pinpointed for that, but she, you know, put it as antiquity um, as when you see the beginning of this. Um, but yeah, uh, unsurprisingly, it's Christians who really hammered the anti-Semitism <laughs> home, associating Jews with Satan and blaming them for killing Jesus. Uh, a thing Mel Gibson famously believes, if you need a reminder that you should not mm. be supporting Mel Gibson in any way, <laughs> for I'm many reasons. I'm still mad that they put him in that John Wick spin I know, it's I'm so never fucking gonna dumb. Never going to get over I it. I'm so it. furious. <laughs> the worst. Anyway, sorry. Uh, anyways, uh, the Killing Jesus thing spread into further conspiracies about the evils of the demonic Jews, perhaps most famously in the concept of blood libel that QAnon types have attached themselves to. This was the idea that Jews kidnap Christian children and drain their blood for rituals. Insanity. Um, these, <laughs> right, it's like, that's, I mean, and that's like legit what that guy shot up Pizzagate over. Right. Shot up the, not shot up Pizzagate, Pizza Planet over. Um, the, um, but yeah, these unhinged ideas about Jews served as a justification for mob violence against them and for their expulsion from the citizenry of places like Spain. And in fact, for a time, Jews and Muslims were closely allied with one another because they were both kicked out of Spain in the 1490s and were accepted into the Ottoman Empire. But in Europe, throughout the Middle Ages, Jews were second-class citizens, relegated to ghettos and kept from owning land and participating in many of the key trades that would have helped them thrive. As such, they became street peddlers, merchants, and money lenders. The latter, a job Christians wanted nothing to do with. And by the 18th century, these small lenders had managed to grow into larger banks. While Christians had been happy to shove off an unwanted, ungodly job onto the Jews, they were not pleased when now that put them in charge of everybody's money. 
So Jews became painted as shrewd, money-grubbing bankers who were responsible for everyone else's problems and were plotting world domination. And while that image has persisted, at the same time, Jews are also blamed for being at the center of a Marxist cabal set on destroying capitalism as we know it, which is totally antithetical to the idea that they actually want all the money and to be at the center of global capitalism. <laughs> but bigotry doesn't have to make sense. Uh, Klein points out, though, that Jews are overrepresented in leftist Marxist circles among some of the biggest names in leftist movements, like Marx himself, Emma Goldman, uh, Trotsky, Walter Benjamin, Theodore Adorno, and so on. And many of these people died in horrible, violent ways, whether in concentration camps or in the streets or by suicide because there was no other way out of the persecution. To Klein, the prevalence of Jews in leftist circles and leadership makes sense because many Jews saw a history of, of oppression and hatred behind them and envisioned a world of solidarity that was safe for everyone. And again, we can see that today. Like So many Jewish people are risking arrest, the loss of familial relationships and friendships, losses of jobs, and all of that to protest what's happening in Gaza. For many, many Jews, as Klein and others have put it, never again means never again for anyone. Whereas to Zionist Jews, never again means never again to Jews. And one of the things I found fascinating was her discussion of learning about the Holocaust when she was growing up and how in conversation with one of the leaders for Jewish Voice for Peace, that person had said that what Jews do regarding that history is not remembering, but re-traumatizing. Remembering, she says, is a quest for wholeness. Quote, at its best, it allows us to be changed and transmuted by grief and loss. But re-traumatization is about freezing us in a shattered state. It's a regime of ritualistic reenactments designed to keep the losses as fresh and painful as possible. It's like tearing a scab off over mm. and over and over again. This re-traumatization caught... Uh, re-traumatization causes Jews to feel that it is not safe and can never be safe for them anywhere in the world. That working towards trying to change societies to be accepting of Jews is folly, and the only way for them ever to truly escape persecution is to have a state all to themselves that is entirely Jewish. Without a Jewish ethnostate, the immutable specter of anti-Semitism, a fixed and unchanging characteristic of the world, it's always going to be there, uh, means that the next genocide of Jews is not a matter of if, but when. Thus, the trauma of the Holocaust paired with the ongoing anti-Semitism worldwide led a contingent of Jews to believe that Israel is their only hope of safety in the world and that they have every right to seize that safety by any means necessary, including the wholesale slaughter of the Palestinians. This is how other colonies began, and to Zionists, it's anti-Semitic to say that they are not allowed to establish themselves in the same way that the rest of the world established themselves. So, after that long-winded overview, Kristen, hey. Hey. Tell us more. Yeah. Don't, <laughs> I'm sure you guys are all wanting to hear more um, <laughs> after that. And uh, yeah, thanks, Corey. That was a great setup for what we're going to kind of look at today. Um, I I know you mentioned it last week and you mentioned it on social media this, this week as well, that kind of the book that we're 
kind of being our main re our resource for today is a book called The Hundred Years, Years War on Palestine um, by Rashid Khalidi. Um, I personally read it um, a couple years ago and I did a book report on it for my book club. I don't do book reports for every book I read. I feel like I need to say that, that it's like, oh, I have a I just assumed you did. <laughs> I just feel like it's important that you guys know that I don't do this for every book. Just <laughs> annually, it's a thing that my book club and I do. Okay. So I did happen to have a presentation for this book. And I was like, oh my gosh, do you want my slides? And Corey's like, actually, yes. Yeah, uh, I just so, want to talk about it instead. Want to come talk about it? Um, anyway, so I just wanted to to say that. But we are going to, that's kind of the focus of the book. And that's where this information is coming from. Um, one of the reasons that kind of led me or led me to the book in the first place was that it's from a Palestinian perspective. So Rashid right. Khalid himself is Palestinian. Um, and so often, as we see, right, that histories and other people's stories tend to get written for them. Um, and mm. Uh, Palestine has a long history of being silenced, the people of Palestine themselves, everyone else telling them what they need, what's good for them, that what they're experiencing isn't real. Um, and so for me, it was important to read something that came from someone who was like, no, this is how this has affected myself, my family, my people. Um, I think that's important when learning about these types of things, right? It's like we so often listen to the colonizer, they are the ones that are telling the main narrative. Um, and we see that even today. Mm. Um, and so it's important to always look for the perspective of the people, the indigenous people of right. the area. So, what's that uh, normal that was... line? Hey, according to this history book, the good guys have won every single time. How do you know that? <laughs> yeah. What are exactly. the chances? Yeah. Totally. Um, but so the main kind of uh, thesis of Rashid's book and Gorkhalidi's book in this in this sense about this uh, war on Palestine is that the modern history of Palestine can be best understood as a colonial war waged against an indigenous population by a variety of parties. So not just one party coming in, um, but by a variety of parties in order to force them to relinquish their homeland to yet another group um, against their will. And when you put it in that sort of colonial terms, a lot of the language, a lot of the PR, a lot of the things that come out of this um, are gonna sound really familiar. Yes. <laughs> if you totally. study colonialism, if you've ever read about anyone being colonized, you're gonna like, gosh, that sounds familiar because colonizers have a handbook and they run the same plays and they borrow from each other. Um, and so a lot of this is going to sound familiar, mainly also because the main colonizers for the first part of this story are the, you know, the OG colonizers, um, yeah. the British. <laughs> and so they really kind of shore up it up. They really did it, you know, a lot. So anyway, <laughs> before we hop into that though, and Corey, you kind of mentioned this a little bit, I do think it's important to understand sort of the, um, concept of Zionism, because yeah. I think, especially nowadays, right, that's pretty charged. And that's, I think, on purpose, um, in order to avoid criticism, if you can yeah. just say, you know, if you can kind of muddle the definition and what people mean when you're saying that, then it's really easy to say, like, oh, you're just being anti-Semitic, or you're, you don't understand, you know, or, you know, honestly, both sides of the story, either you're being anti-Semitic, or you're not depending on how you're using it, and who gets to use it. Um, but there is a definition to this, right? It's a political organization. It's a political ideology um, that was established in the late 1900s, uh, or sorry, excuse 18. me, late 1800s, <laughs> um, 19th century. I always do that um, by a man <laughs> named Theodore Herzl. Um, and it was out of the, like you said, kind of the direct answer to intense anti-Semitism in literally every country on the planet, yeah. um, mainly in Europe. Um, that is where it was kind of born out of. Um, but it's that's what it's born out of, right? They they're like the only way we can be safe and can 
really guarantee the safety of a Jewish people is to have a Jewish homeland that is comprised of only Jewish people. Um, and that's a really important um, aspect of Zionism in that the Jewish homeland has to be in Palestine. It can only be, of Jew be made of Jewish people. Therefore, anybody else who's there has to be expelled. Um, and that is the main crux behind it. Um, and you see that playing out in a very real way today. Um, and as we kind of move through the story, you'll see how it's been playing out for the past hundred years. Um, but the the sort of rallying cry, at least at the early point when this uh, political ideology was first taking off, was that Palestine was seen as terra nullis and its occupants nomadic, no real national identity, just kind of there, super easy to kind of push them out of the way and take the land. Um, the rallying cry, as uh, we kind of mentioned before, was a land without a people for a people without a land um, is the rallying cry of early Zionists. And actually just recently watched a film about uh, Israel um, this week where mm. a woman, I mean, I think the film was made in 2021 yeah. um, or, or somewhere around there. And she said that. And I yeah. was like, with like no oh. iron, like was like, oh yeah, yeah. It's a land without a people for a people. Isn't that so wonderful? And she's like, got this like big how smile. can you be like in your fifties and still think that? Yeah. And I was like, That's yeah, it's insane. one thing if it's right. 1901, you don't have a great grasp on geography. Someone's telling <laughs> right. you that this place you've never heard of is empty. And you're like, awesome. When you're like, but in 2020, when it's been very obvious that there are people who have lived there for generations, um, the fact that you're still kind of spouting that is troublesome to me um, and yeah, has exactly. taught me that you haven't tried to learn anything other than what someone's told you. Um, yeah. And this concept of terra nullius too, like, I mean, again, when you talk about like playbooks and things like that, that's one, the, terra nullius was a, a term that was used in, uh, you know, North America as well to say like, you know, we, sure, this is an empty totally. spot. We, we're going to go over there and we're going to clear all, the, all this out and it's going to be ours. And like, mm -hmm. you know, it basically is saying like even if there are people there it's the same thing as there being animals there they're not they're not human like us they're yeah we they're can... not civilized so we can just right. sort of get you know they can just move out and we can move in and it'll yeah. be great <laughs> um which was interesting even in the book um Rashid's or Khalidi's uncle um had a correspondence with Herzl when Herzl was kind of like floating this idea to him and the uncle was like no, we, we, there's a lot of we, there's a lot of people who live here. You can't just like yeah. come in. He's like, no, no, it'll be great. It'll actually be great for you because we're going to come in and like make it better. And he's like, what's wrong with it? Now? There's nothing wrong with it now. It doesn't need to be yeah. like made better. Um, and so, but the uh, Zionism was very organized. And from its inception up until uh, 1917, um, up and until World War One, they worked hard behind the scenes to like press put pressure on governments to organize people to um, raise funds. They were very, they are and continue to be, I think, very forward thinking and kind of reading the political landscape, um, understanding maybe who the next big player is going to be, um, and that is all going to work to their advantage um, later on when they actually are able to be in Palestine. But it's important that for this kind of, because the time period we're looking at today is about 1917 to 1948 um, is all we're going to look at today. Um, and so when we, and so essentially that you're going to hear me using the term Zionists a lot because there is no Israel yet, right? It is right. Zionism. It is Zionists who are moving in. So that's why I wanted to sort of make sure we understand that term. Right. And that's this, this ideology, this political ideology that we're talking about. Um, but up until this point, so they it feels like they come out of nowhere, but in reality, they've been really working hard to organize themselves um, to be able to, when it was um, advantageous, to make kind of their like pitch, big pitch to like, hey, we really want to go to this place. Um, 
and they're going to get that um, that opportunity is going to present itself. Like I said, if you if 1917 and 1939 sound really familiar to you, mm. <laughs> <laughs> probably not, probably should. It's bookended right by two world wars um, that are going to be the kind of the beginning and end of this uh, story almost. And so at the um, 1917 is sort of the we're gonna. Another history lesson that I can't get into, but I'd love to talk about the Ottoman <laughs> Empire. Um, Corey kind of mentioned it earlier, and I was like, yeah. oh my God, are we going to talk about it? Um, <laughs> we're not going to do that. But um, Ottoman Empire ruled for 400 years, um, and especially especially in Palestine, because that's the area we're going to talk about. But in much of the Middle East was the major governing body for, I mean, that's like 20 generations of people. So anybody who's alive is like, that's all that they've ever known. Uh, and so World War One happens. Not to spoil it, the Turks lose, um, <laughs> and all of that empire gets broken up completely. And so European powers kind of move into other places in the Middle East, Brit um, Britain occupying Palestine and kind of being their main thing. So Palestine, like every other country after World War One, really was ravaged. They lost about yeah. 6% of their population. Um, and they have been ruled, like I said, for 400 years by the Ottomans, all of a sudden to be not ruled by the Ottomans and have this, you know, occupying force that has, doesn't share a culture or a language or anything in familiar with them being like, we're the captain now. So thanks guys, we're going to be in charge. Um, and the first thing in the British playbook for colonization is to sort of cut off any sort of information uh, to the occupied people. So they don't really know what's going on, right? They're um, a lot of their people have died, their economies in shambles. They were, you know, the industrial revolution was like in full speed and it all just kind of like gets like the, mm -hmm. just kind of gets stopped um, in the, in the wake of the war. And so the big, to me, what I think is one of the wildest parts of this story is that um, there's a guy, it's called the Balfour Declaration. So Lord um, Arthur Balfour, he writes one sentence I mean, I personally, I mean, it's a run on, on sentence. Yeah, it's a run on <laughs> sentence, but it has only one period. So it technically is one sentence. And this one sentence changes the trajectory of the Palestine Palestine for the next 100 years, um, which is wild. Yeah. Um. So if someone tells you words don't matter, <laughs> this really matters. Uh. And so uh, Balfour says this. So in uh, 19 November of 1917, he releases this declaration um, to Everybody, spoiler alert, except for the Palestinians, they don't really get news of this. And he says that um, his majesty's government government view with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavors to facilitate the achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. Um. So you might notice that the only time, right, so Palestinians themselves, though, aren't actually mentioned in this Balfour Declaration. They are mm. simply called the non-Jewish community, um, which is 95% of the occupants in Palestine at this time. Um, and this is just like, hey, guess what? If you want to move to there, you totally can. <laughs> that <laughs> is totes cool. We're not going to stop you. We're actually going to promote it. Um, it's important that you do this. <laughs> You're like, oh, yeah. And it's kind of uh, wild out the gate because like, A, like you said, the Palestinians are not told this. They have no idea this is happening as all of a sudden a whole bunch of, of Jews start flooding in here and being like, this is our house now. They're yeah. like, nobody told us what's going on here. 
So yeah. in addition to them and the British who are also like, this is also our house, but we're going right, to let these yeah. other guys, my cousin's <laughs> going to come sleep on the couch if that's cool. Right. Yeah, um, exactly. And yeah. then on top of that, this, you know, one of the things that Khalidi points out is that, you know, this is saying that their civil and religious rights of the Palestinians shouldn't be infringed upon, but that's not saying anything about their right to like govern and self-government mm -hmm. or anything like that. You know, they are going to be, they're going to have, you know, the government imposed upon them now by this occupying group. Uh, but, you know, it's fine because they their civil and religious liberties will be preserved. Yeah, which will totally be a thing that we like enforce. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. We're <laughs> um, definitely going to do that. Um, and you're, yeah. And so you're probably wondering, right? Like, well, why are the British, like, what's their deal with this? Like, you, normally, like I said, we kind of talked about earlier and we'll mention this, I'll mention it again, but normally when you get colonized, that is the, those people are the ones that are coming. Right. In. Yeah. But it's really you don't colonize on somebody else's behalf. Somebody else's behalf. Um, but Brit Britain had kind of three reasons for wanting to support um, Zionism. One, they also believed that um, Jews had a God-given right to this land, um, being at the land of the Bible, right? There's a lot of, lot of religious um, baggage. Aggression? I don't <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, aggression. There aggression, I think I want to use. Yeah, yeah entitlement. Um, in yeah. this. Yeah, but entitlement. And so it's wild. And so that's their kind of, that's one of them. The second is just good old anti-Semitism because yeah. Britain's like, oh, I guess we don't have to let as many Jews into Britain if we can just send them to Palestine. Um, Which was, you know, so. that came up also when we talked about colonization in America. Like some of the reasons why people were against imperialism in America were like the same kinds of things. Like we don't right. want them here. Yeah, so we'll so, just send them anywhere else. And yeah. they're like, luckily, the Zionists had an exact idea where they wanted to go. So, right. um, and then the third was actually just geopolitical, normal, boring stuff. Where, but even <laughs> before this, Britain was like, I feel like we should probably have some kind of hold in that area. Um, and this was the easiest place to do so because they kind of got to essentially kill two birds with one stone um, in that idea. Um, so anyway, like I said, Palestinians last to know about this declaration because they don't have any sort of newspapers. The Britain, uh, British aren't allowing them to really communicate or share information um, in the country. Um, and then during this time, because, right, when you're after a war, there's everyone sort of like the economies and chatters, um, Zionist movement starts buying up large swaths of land throughout the country. Um, right. And like I said, when there's no communication, the Palestinians, no one knows what's going on. Um, and it's also interesting because, it, you know, I don't know how much this is true, but you could, you know, there's this argument that after World War One, especially, you know, Woodrow Wilson's everyone like, wow, nation should self-determine. Everyone should be able to decide a lot of these countries in the surrounding area. Um, you know, Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Iraq, all these places are like trying to also kind of toss off the shackles of um of their colonizers and Palestine's like oh yeah we would also like to do that and Woodrow's like oh no no not you sorry I meant everybody else but you you don't get to do that all these other people should for sure right and yeah, so it was a it was against trend at that point everyone else yeah. is decolonizing and all of a sudden Palestine yeah. is being colonized being colonized and so that's another interesting thing that at the end of the book um, Khalidi kind of makes that point where he's like, essentially, they're trying to colonize a country in a po what it should is a post-colonial age when everyone's right. like, colonize it, colonies aren't cool anymore. Um, and yet they tried to do this anyway. And so the hard thing was, is that even when Palestine, even when some of the like academic kind of class in the country were, like got work, like wind of exactly what was happening, they're like, okay, let's organize let's go meet, you know, with the British and try and do this. And the British are like, no, you're not like, we're not recognizing you 
as a formal entity and they're like, right, but we're the people who live in this country that you're occupying. And they're like, no, the only kind of people we recognize are these Zionist leaders that we've allowed to come in, um, which obviously then makes it even more difficult to advocate for yourselves and for right. your your homeland when no one the people won't even take your meetings right he's not right. they're not taking your calls at this point they're just sort of sending you to voicemail um so obviously during this time then violent and nonviolent protests are kind of breaking out amid the working class in Palestine and if you know anything about how the British love protests in their colonies they do not <laughs> um, and they are violently violently put down um, and we're going to talk a little bit about how they do that um, in a in a minute, but it starts here early. So this is nineteen. This is, I mean, immediately, right? So within we're in the twenties here, and they're already starting um, to experience this oppression in a violent way. Um, and then really quickly on the heels of the Balfour Declaration, nineteen twenty two um, is the mandate that comes down from the League of Nations, who. 99% of the time, as my friend Leslie says, are about as useful as a potted plant. Um, but every once in a while, they're like, that's unfair to a potted plant. They make oxygen for us. <laughs> you know what? Corey, you're right. I'm sorry, potted plant. I didn't mean to malign you thus. Um, the, the League of Nations in 1922 issues this mandate for Palestine. Um, interestingly, it never mentions the word Palestinian um, or Arab in the entire document, mm. um, but essentially pulls the Balfour Declaration word for word and codifies it. Um, and gives it its legs and is like, Jewish people have historic tie to this land, but completely ignore the fact that there are people physically living there who have literal historic ties and physical ties to the land. Um, and they essentially, this mandate sets up a Zionist parastate within Palestine. And they become seen as the only um, real government um, other than the British occupying force. And it is allowing for sort of, like I said, unlimited immigration to the area. And it's really obviously adding a lot of frustration, especially in the interwar years when so many Jews have to flee Europe, right? Because of the rise of Nazism and the um, anti-Jewish laws in all of the surrounding countries in Europe are like, oh no, no, you can't come here. It's like literally yeah. the only place for them to go. Right. America's not accepting them. You know, no one Europe, is letting, nobody in Europe is letting, Brits are not letting them in. Yeah, uh, no one is. They are, you know, that's one of the things about this is like, it's a rock and a hard place. Like where are they going to go? Well, there is this one place. There is this one place where they have now, the Zionist movement has bought up about 70% of the land that was formerly Palestine. Um, and this is where you get a lot of the actual uprisings start happening from about 34, 36 through 37 um, is when people start really rising up in Palestine. And they're like, no, no, like this is this cannot be. You can't just like kick me out of my home. Um, it starts having some clashes between settlers um, and the indigenous people. And uh, I don't know if we we're going to put this article for people to read as well, Corey, um, uh, the banality of brutality, which yes, talks a lot to that. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, it talks, it's a footnote in this book and, <laughs> uh, and then you can, you can read it, but it goes specifically into British tactics and how they were able to, and you're reading it and you're like, it was wild. It's wild to read it. Cause you're like, oh, this is all very familiar. Not only is right. it going to sound familiar as we go through some of the examples from the things that Corey talked about last week on the podcast, but also the things that you see today, this is like the same old playbook um, that they continue to yeah. use. Yeah, It's honestly, I mean, it, it's, it's an, it, this is, this article is about 42 pages long. So we didn't summarize like everything 
thing mm. in here, but just sort of took like a, a brief survey of some of the things that the British did in order to sort of quash rebellion and, and in terms of collective punishment and all that kind of stuff. So just like like 10 things right here that is only a quarter of the things that are in the BuzzFeed article the top 10 ways the British can violently put down right exactly (laughs) this is the BuzzFeedified version let's just go through some of the examples here and again they'll sound familiar um and uh horrifying so uh for example possession of firearms was punishable by death penalty but the rural villagers of the area often kept guns for hunting and protection. So essentially, they criminalized their normal lives and livelihoods. Uh, one uh, in this article, it points out one old man with no criminal record received a sentence of 10 years for having three rounds in a coffee pot, which the police could easily have planted during their search. A mm. sentence reduced on appeal to four years. So just random old guy they raid his house find some rounds and he is thrown in jail for four years but could be worse could literally be death um the british made sure to go through the show of giving those they captured a trial because obviously extrajudicial extrajudicial murder is a war crime uh but the trials were absolute shams often carried out very quickly quickly and with the prisoner almost inevitably being led to the gallows at the end Uh, Another quote, since late 1937, the army had been in charge with the full power of search and arrest independent of the police and the right to shoot and kill any man attempting to escape search or ignore challenges. So if you like were like, no, you'd have no reason to, you know, go through my pockets, they could just kill you. Um, Grenades may may be used during searches of caves, wells, etc., uh, since November 1937, cooperating aircraft have been bombed up and pilots instructed to machine gun or bomb armed parties. So, again, like, you know, the way that he kind of talked about this in this is that it's essentially martial law without declaring martial law. It's a de facto instead of de jure martial law that's happening here. Uh, collective punishment was par for the course and British forces loved to blow up Arab homes. The more impressive the home, uh, the better. And they would loot them and destroy the property inside of the homes as well. The soldiers were struggling to actually find and kill the Palestinian insurgents. So they simply made life a living hell for the civilians, which, again, we see now, you know, the idea of using the civilians as human shields. Right. That's the thing that a lot of um, Zionists say is like, oh, you know, none of this would be happening uh, if Hamas wasn't using civilians as human shields. And that's exactly what's happening here. They're like, you know, we're having trouble finding these people. Oh, because the civilians are are hiding them. So we're just going to make their lives miserable um, as a result. And it's important to realize that a lot of the civilians weren't for the rebels. They were not on that side. They were being, uh, you know, oppressed by rebels as well. Um so we're not talking about like, again, it'd be like there's a lot of people now who are anti-Hamas who live in Palestine um, and you're punishing everyone as if they are on that side, you know, indiscriminately simply because they're there. Uh, on the morning of June 16th, 1936, the British airdropped leaflets telling residents they needed to evacuate their homes by 9 p.m. They then blew up over 220 buildings, leaving some 6,000 Palestinians homeless, many having little more than the clothes on their backs when they evacuated. This, by the way, is one of the things that Israel says makes them so moral now. 
They argue that they warn the Palestinians when they're going to level their cities, which is a courtesy that they don't have to extend, but they do it because they're so good. You can see where they got it from. It was exactly what the Brits were doing there before. A British school teacher in Palestine noted that the soldiers would start destroying things simply because they were bored. Just a lot of pent-up energy, so they would start smashing Palestinians' shit. Uh, quote, the army also took away all the livestock, smashed up properties, imposed long curfews and police posts, blew up houses, and detained some or all of the menfolk in distant detention camps. Oh, detention but, camps is a nice way of saying that. Yeah, detention camps. Like, even in this, it's like, okay, we're... <laughs> fun <laughs> yeah. camp you think fun don't you yeah, yeah right i love camp <laughs> it's super cool to go every summer um civilians bore the brunt of the punishment whether fines destruction of property beatings and even death despite the fact like i said that they often disagreed with the rebels it didn't matter that they might actively oppose the same forces as the british they were punished simply for being arab like the rebels were uh, troops shot Arabs indiscriminately in the streets when military actions were particularly intense, causing civilians to be in constant fear for their lives, whether walking down the road or tending their sheep. Again, sounds familiar, right? Every single day, if you're watching feeds on Instagram and things like that, you're seeing today I saw a mom and her like six-year-old kid who were just sniped in the street, killed, and mm. they were just dragging the bodies out of the street. Like every day, this mm. is what you see, just making it so people cannot walk anywhere do anything without uh, someone killing them. Major General H.E.N. Bredin said at the time uh, as an order to bash anybody on the head who broke the law. And if he didn't want to be bashed on the head, then he had to be shot. It may sound brutal, but in fact was a reasonably nice, simple objective and the soldiers understood it. Fuck me. Uh, British army practice was to make local Arabs ride. Oh, this is Particularly horrendous. British Army practice was to make local Arabs ride with military convoys to prevent mine attacks. Often soldiers carried them or tied them to the bonnets of lorries or put the hostages on small flatbeds on the front of the trains, all to prevent mining or sniper attacks. Quote, the naughty boys who we had in the cages in these camps were put in vehicles in front of the convoy for the deterrent effect, as one British officer put it. The army told the Arabs that they would shoot any of them who tried to run away on the lorries. Some soldiers would break hard at the end of a journey and then casually drive over the Arab who had tumbled from the bonnet, killing or maiming him. So they would use the guy to keep them from getting sniped or mined and then mm. afterwards knock him off the lorry and run him over. Horrifying. Like I said, we could go on and on. This is a 42-page article, but I think that gets the point across how brutal the British occupation was and how casual about it they were about just destroying all of this because they did not see these as people they were just you know it's like having a, a field of cattle in the way hmm. yeah yeah and it, it's no yeah i was like what do you even say about that that's just right, what yeah. it was and it's crazy it's, it it's not crazy but you should also remember too that this is just like one example the author even points out a lot and i think it's important too, you see a lot today is how uh, a lot of the tactics that they used uh, to suppress the Irish um, were then used against the Palestinians. Yep. So there actually is a very big sort of um, brotherhood of, yes. of of Irish of the Irish supporting Palestinians because they were so often in the same time period as well being 
subject to the same thing. So they yes. tested out in Ireland, like, oh, this actually really worked. Let's do that here as well. Um, and so at this time, Palestine, like I said, kind of earlier, is facing these three foes, right? Not the Zionism, the Zionist kind of parastate that's there, um, a violent British occupier, and then the League of Nations. Um, apologies once again to the potted plant. I'm sorry for <laughs> um, really saying that. Uh, but then, so this this kind of big uprising in the the article itself is kind of covering a period of of insurrection or of like rebellion in Palestine from about 36 to 39, and then obviously. I don't know if you know this, then there's this other war that happens, World War II, uh, kicks <laughs> off in 39, uh, and that kind of, you know, will carry us through the next little bit, obviously, until about 45. Um, and then the second kind of uh, declaration of war is what Khalidi calls in his book, but I would say the second era of um, oppression, <laughs> you could right. call it, um, kicks off. And this is going to be the one that probably that is going to be sounding familiar to most of you. People have been bringing it up often um, in recent news reports. Um, <clears throat> but so following the war, there's actually this kind of group that gets set up to be like, there's all these Holocaust survivors, like, what should we do with them? And everyone's like, well, I know, we'll just send them to Palestine, this place that's like ready made for them, um, which is like already fraught. <laughs> there's already all of these issues going on. Um, but that's that's happening. The UN now, right? So League of Nations, they were like, well, that didn't work as great. Let's do another equally um, efficient world, you know, power party. The UN General Assembly votes in 47, 1947, November 29th to pass Resolution 81, um, which allows for the partition of Palestine and Israel. Um, so they they had first pitched it back in 37, and then there was this huge kind of right in uproar, and then the war happened, and so now they're kind of getting back to back around to it. Uh, crazy, they don't actually learn their lesson, right? And then like later they're like, oh my gosh, that worked so super well. We should just do it again in India. Um <laughs> But they they pitch it here, and that that resolution gets passed, and this is known uh, to the Palestinian people as the Nakba, um, or it means the catastrophe by Palestinians. So at this point now, Israel controls, or I'm sorry, not Israel, Zionists are now control about seventy eight percent of what is formerly Palestine, and so from November nineteen forty seven until the creation of Israel in May of nineteen forty eight, uh, almost three quarters of a million Palestinians are immediately refugees. Um, and so out of a population of 1.2 million people, we're talking 720,000 refugees Crazy. are pushed out of their homes. And so not only are they then trying to either find a place in Palestine or they're, it destabilizes the countries surrounding them, these countries that are also trying to fight for independence um, and trying to kind of set up their own self-governance are now, you know, they are all receiving these refugees that have been expelled from their land um, in Palestine. And so- it's this major humanitarian catastrophe uh, and you see it on the faces. I feel like of people that they interview nowadays, like I just recently was watching a story of a woman who that happened to her and she's, she's older now, obviously she's kind of nearing the end of her age. And she's like, all I want is one year of stability before I die. Mm -hmm. And she's like, doesn't think she's going to get it. One year is all right. she's asking. And this has caused, so this causes obviously a major, I mean, just crazy upheaval. The, Partition allowed for Zionists to control, you know, move into certain areas, um, but no one really like regulated it. And so right. um, 
nations or places that were supposed to stay Arab and Palestinian, no one policed that when, you know, Zionists moved in. We're like, nope, we're also taking this. So 60,000 people out of Jaffa, you guys all need to get out of here. We're going to move in here. Um, and they just depopulated, you know, <laughs> which is like and we're talking weird about euphemism. Like, yeah, right. And we're talking about like huge urban areas. Here. You yeah, know, yeah, we're, yeah, it's not just like, oh, they took over a bunch of people's farmlands. Like, you know, these were people's like, olive groves people who were like uh you know important powerful people uh in palestine you know they were they went for nobody was safe from this you couldn't buy your way out of no. the nakba you were if they came and they were like we would like your house now that was their house and that was it yeah and yeah and like i said they started taking places that were even technically not supposed to have been given to them um and it made it even worse and the people were like well no 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 where this isn't supposed to be and they're like doesn't matter you need to vacate the premises immediately um and so like i said then so then you get to april or may 15th 1948 is the official creation of the state of israel um and then at this point palestine has been split between three so if you're still living in the area if you're still living within palestine if you haven't been um you know if you're not a refugee in one of the surrounding countries then you find yourself under one of three essentially occupying forces so once israel is created the brits are like cool you've got you guys have this now right we don't need to be here and they peace out um and so now we've got egypt who controls the area of the gaza strip which would make sense if you remember your kind of geography of the area they share a border with gaza um, and then you have jordan which controlled both the west bank and uh, uh east jerusalem and then Pal or israel then controls the rest of the land and so like i said palestinians palestinians who had not been forced out but then were under israeli governance found themselves immediately being second class citizens because the you know, constitution, the government set up by um, by Israel only applied to Jews. And so if you weren't a Jew in Israel, mm -hmm. then that meant that you were now under the control of the military um, and they have a control over like every little part of your life. So if that sounds familiar, <laughs> it should. This yes. isn't something that like, oh, recently, you know, after the Oslo Accords, this is something that happened. It's like, no, this is not a new concept. Like Israel has established an apartheid government immediately in 1948. Uh, and that has continued in that until today. Uh, and it's obviously the land, you know, the switching of who's in control of what has changed since then. But this is going to set the stage for numerous conflicts that are going to happen um, from 48 in 56 and 67 and 81 um and throughout you know and then in the 2000 into the 2000s um as well yep exactly that <sighs> uh thank you Kristen. that's a lot yeah it is <laughs> it's it's a vast vast amount and what i what i what i'm still struggling with is is this idea of how the fuck can an idea like anti-Semitism shape global events the way it has? Mm -hmm. Uh because that yeah, I I you know I I can be left with no other conclusion but that that simple fucking original hatred then has fucking formed and shaped politics and world powers and 
you know, and 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 continue. Yeah, you're to really do so. you're really getting into actually what Na uh, Naomi Klein's whole book is really about doppelganger and this sort of you know the idea of doppelgangers and doubles and all of that. And that's one of the things mm. she sort of argues is that you're like all of these kinds of things have like a shadow. They have a doppelganger. They have like sort of an equal and opposite thing. Um, yeah. And that, you know, this Zionism being sort of that that shadow, that reflection of that um, anti-Semitism that has, you know, pervaded culture globally for, you know, centuries or, you know, however long um, that, you know, this dark force of Zionism and the, all this stuff that is going on um, is like sort of it's just sort of the equal and opposite um element of that mm. you know that which is not to say like it's an inevitability but it's like you it's kind of what happens when you don't acknowledge your shadow and and your trauma and those things that have been following you all this time and instead sort of this this re-traumatization that she's talking about like what if you'd never work through that and mm. instead of trying to make everything better um you go for retribution you go for mm. um you know keeping on peeling peeling the scab off of those wounds um, and then blaming it on on someone else, you know, and taking that out on someone Yeah, well, else. it's a cycle, right? We see it. This is like a large scale cycle. What you see, I think a lot of times in families who experience trauma mm. um, is that when you, when it doesn't, when there's no way to break that cycle, it continues to then revisit itself yeah. upon the next generation. Yes. And so what is upsetting in this regard is that the trauma that Zionists, you know, folks who ascribe to that have experience instead of working through that and being like, okay, how do we figure this out and move forward? It's like, well, now that trauma is not being, is being revisited on the Palestinians. Um, it's so you, like, yeah, a parent who that, is abused going yeah, and abusing of like their children instead going and of going their children, right? Because yeah. they get to be in charge of these people. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's that, but on a global scale, which has yeah. these consequences that we've seen that are, I don't even necessarily have words for the consequences um of of that happening yeah definitely and i'm sure mark that none of this was was taught to you in school huh not a word of it yeah which is i mean i think that was as i was reading this and realizing that you know lloyd george was at the center a lot of of a lot of this policy and things like that i i thought to myself you know i don't think that this is a thing that no, like no. i've read about him at great length before and and never saw that that was a part of of who he was um and so it's all like you know so much of all of this is about disappearing this narrative like Kristen said at the beginning like uh, palestinians not being able to tell their own story and how much of this has been made invisible um over these years that like whether you are a kid going to Hebrew school or a kid in the American public school system or a Brit in your school system, um, this has been erased from how Israel came to be, um, which is why so many people are so ignorant of it and so defensive of Israel and this idea like, well, don't they have the right to defend themselves? Don't they have the right to exist? Things like that. Well, if you have if you take all of this context out, sure. But when you add that back in, then you have to start asking some really tough questions mm -hmm. or answering those questions in uh, complicated ways. Mm. So we'll we'll continue on that track, uh, going into more of 
why America and Britain just can't get enough of this, uh, why this is still going on in some of the later, um, you know, ways in which it's been hashed out. But yeah, can I say one more thing? Also, I wanted to point out that this is sort of the era when as the British leave, um, that's going to create the U.S. to step in and take their place. And so you're going to see them as going to be the main backer. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Nakba was kind of the British's last hurrah of getting this resolution passed and being like, "Okay, cool. Now we've set this up. We're going to go ahead and leave. Um, And a lot of that was actually the, you know, Israel seeing, and like I said, they have a very forward thinking, Mm -hmm. like of seeing the next big power coming up. They watched what was happening in World War II. They saw like the next horse to bet on is not Great Britain. It's going to be the U.S. And if we want a stronger ally, that's going to be who we need to to back up. So we're going to move away from from the Brits now. Um, and I mean, they're still into, there, but I they're mean, totally still there. But I would but, say, yeah, they're, yeah, they're not yeah. physically still there, but they're and they're still there as allies. But I would say the main, yeah, the main ally in our story going forward is going to be the US. Yay. Okay. Thank you again, Kristen, for yeah. yes, all of that. Super nice. Like I said, I love giving my presentation to people. <laughs> Very glad of that. It's if anybody wonderful. wants my slides, I'm more than happy to send them out. No, there you go. Hit up Kristen if you if you Let want some slides on this. Uh, if you want again... to have a Zoom and I can give you my full 40 minute presentation <laughs> on this book. And all the um, uh, the sources and everything, of course, are in the blog, in the description, all of that kind of stuff. And we'll we'll keep on keeping on. Um, anything to conclude there, Mark? No, not from me. Just echo your thanks. Thank you very much indeed, Kristen. It was great. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't fun. It was terrible. But it was nice to talk it out. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. And <laughs> do that. So thanks for and having me. Dear listeners, thank you for joining us as well. Mm. Um, and keeping on this journey. Um, and we hope you're finding it enlightening and that you're not too depressed. Um, and that if you are too depressed, it is spurring you to action right to your... Uh, representatives, even if like mine, they never send you so much as a form letter back. (laughs) And until next time, dear friends, please just stay spooky.